This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is now a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each episode I interview authors about their latest works. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Today, I am interviewing Jennifer Saint about Ariadne. Jennifer grew up reading Greek mythology and was always drawn to the untold stories hidden within the myths. After 13 years as a high school English teacher, she wrote Ariadne, which tells the legend of Theseus and the Minotaur from the perspective of Ariadne, the woman who made it happen. Jennifer is now a full-time author living in Yorkshire, England with her husband and two children. Ariadne was just picked as one of the May Book of the Month selections. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome, Jennifer. How are you today? Oh, fine. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Jennifer, why don't we start out with you talking a little bit about Ariadne? The book tells the story of Theseus and the Minotaur, but it's from the perspective of Ariadne, who is the woman that made it all happen and the woman who saved the hero. So it follows her through her journey from when the Minotaur was born to her mother, to her decision to betray her family and help Theseus to destroy it, and then what happened to her and her sister afterwards. Well, how did you become interested enough in this story to want to write about it? So I've always been interested in Greek mythology. So, you know, I grew up reading Greek myths and being fascinated by them. I went on to read classical studies at university. So it's always been an interest of mine. It's always been a passion. And then so many sort of Greek mythology retellings have come out over the last few years. And my children were interested in Greek myth as well. So I was reading to them, I was reading to my oldest son, the story of Theseus and the Minotaur. And it struck both of us when we were reading that there just wasn't very much about Ariadne, even though she plays such a crucial role in the story. So I thought I would look and see if anyone had written her version of the story and I couldn't find it anywhere. So I decided to write it. Well, I do think that it's so interesting that there have been a number of books that are telling modern retellings are going back and retelling these myths from a different perspective in the last couple of years. It's kind of fun to see those. Yeah, it is. Yeah, definitely. So did you have to do research? Because this is kind of a different type of, I don't know, historical fiction or story. So what did you do to be able to tell the story? Yeah, so I did have to do quite a bit of research. So I had a few a few things that I used to help me create the story. I mean, first of all, building a Bronze Age world is is a really challenging thing because what survives of that time is so fragmentary anyway. Um, You know, we we have sort of ruins, we have a few things preserved in museums or partial artifacts, Um, but there's so much that actually we don't know about the way that people lived in the Bronze Age. So 
that was a big challenge, finding out as much as I could to make the world as real and convincing as I possibly could make it. And then from a story point of view, um, it's the opposite. There's an abundance of, of resources that you can use to find different versions of what happened to these characters, different ways that people have interpreted them. I used quite a lot as a reference point. I used Ovid's Heroides, which um, Ovid was a Roman poet writing in the first century BCE. And the Heroides is a collection of letters where he imagines the women of mythology writing letters to the men whose stories that they are a part of, and often a really crucial part of the story, but the stories are remembered as being about the men. So both Ariadne and her sister Phaedra, who's a really crucial character in the novel as well, they write letters in the Heroides, and I use those to really ground the story and give me a sense of who those those women were. What was it like to read those documents? I mean, they were obviously written in another language a very long time ago. They've been translated. But is it, I mean, did it take a lot to work your way through them? Well, they were sources that I already owned, luckily. So I kept everything from my degree. So it just involved going into the loft and and unpacking all those old books and reading through them. Um, And then there's so much available online as well. So I used the Euripides play Hippolytus for some more details on Phaedra's story. And that was something that I could easily find online. It is quite easy even throughout lockdown and you know when you can't go to museums and visit them you can see them on the internet you know you can do virtual tours you can find the resources to read so it it was quite straightforward to discover it all. Oh that's fascinating because it wouldn't seem like it would be as easy as you're describing so that's wonderful. Yeah, well, I suppose I had I had the head start of, you know, having the resources from my degree and being familiar with the stories already. That's true. And what about the Bronze Age stuff? Like, where did you look for that? Yeah, so, um, I mean, that just involved, I went to the British Museum. They've got a whole Minoan display case there, which is, you know, from, from Crete, um, from the Bronze Age. And so I just looked really carefully and made notes when I was in there and then read around as much as I could what historians have written, what how other novelists have created it, did my best to fill in the gaps. And that was something that over the editing process as well was it was it was a constant process of refinement, because while while you're writing something that's fantastical and magical and you know, you're sort of writing about monsters and gods, which are obviously require a suspension of disbelief. You don't want to then jar the reader out of that world by writing something that couldn't possibly have existed in that period of time. And so, yeah, so that was challenging. Well, that's so interesting that you mentioned pulling the reader out, because that is a conversation I've probably had with three to four authors recently when I've been interviewing them talking about historical fiction and the time period and using either an incorrect word or an invention that hadn't happened yet. And that it's really frustrating as a reader to get distracted by something that doesn't make sense in the story and it completely pulls you out. So it's wonderful when authors really do take the time to make sure they've created what actually was happening then. Yeah, and it's even in the like the metaphorical language that you're using for the way the characters are thinking about themselves and you suddenly realize, oh, they've compared themselves to something that doesn't exist. And, you know, you, you get swept up in that first person narrative. And it's, yeah, it's a constant process of making sure that you stay immersed in that world as much as you can. 
which I, I wouldn't say I'm confident there are zero errors, but we've absolutely, I've done my best to make sure. Well, I doubt there are ever zero errors, but, you know, <laughs> making the effort, I think, is what usually results in a fabulous product. Yeah, I hope so. Well, did you have a highlight of writing Ariadne? Oh, um, I mean, I think the the highlight, I suppose, would be finishing it. Um, because actually, when I set out to write the novel, the challenge that I set myself was just to write a complete first draft of a novel, because that was something I'd never accomplished before. I'd always wanted to be a writer, and I had a few sort of half-started projects that, you know, I'd kind of abandoned along the years. And so I just really wanted to prove that I could finish something. And I actually wrote the ending of it. And um, when I was on holiday with my family, we were in um, a lovely cottage in France. Um, and I just remember finishing it and then going out into the garden and thinking, well, I've done it. Whatever happens, you know, whether it ever sees the light of day, I've written a complete novel and something that I'm so proud of. And um, so that was that was probably the highlight. Well, I'm sure that had to be very rewarding to feel like you had made it through the entire thing and had been able to be like, I am here at the end, the end. Yeah. Yeah, those are two good words to type, even though when you type them, you are nowhere near the end. Yeah, exactly. That's sort of a noise as you write the end and you're like, hallelujah, but I realize that I still have a long way to go. But still, yeah. it's symbolic. That's right. Well, do you have a favorite Greek myth? I mean, is it Ariadne or is there another one that has always captured your attention? Hmm. So, uh, well, I mean, obviously, Ariadne has become my favorite Greek myth because I've done so much research and enjoyed embodying that that world so much that it's probably my favorite Greek myth now. But I'm always fascinated by stories from Troy as well. So I think there's something about the the drama of, of the Troy saga, of that extended siege and the complete annihilation that it results in. And characters like Cassandra, the doomed prophetess of Troy, I think she's just one of the most interesting characters in Greek mythology. And somebody who still feels, like Ariadne does, I think, quite relevant today in that she's shouting out all of these warnings about impending disaster and everybody is ignoring her. So I think she's a brilliant character. Well, I always have to sit there and think about the Greek myths and There are a lot of them I really like, but I think Icarus is one of my favorites. I've always just been totally infatuated with that story. I don't know why, but I just think, I I don't know, it has always stuck with me. Yeah, well, I really enjoyed writing that part of the novel, actually, and putting in that that part, because there's something so striking about that image of him soaring through the sky and and aiming that bit too high and the the tragedy of it. Yeah, Yeah, I agree. I love that myth. And then the other one that I was not very familiar with, but my daughter loves Greek mythology. And so we saw Hades Town when it was on Broadway, Persephone, which I did know that story pretty well. And so that enjoyed that part of it. But the Orpheus and Eurydice, I was not very familiar with that story at all, other than just knowing the name Orpheus. And I went into that show thinking, oh, I'll watch this because she really wants to watch it. And it was so good. And I really, really enjoyed learning a lot more about those two characters and that particular Greek myth. Yeah, there is. There are two brilliant poems from the perspective of Eurydice. There's one by Margaret Atwood and there's one by Carol Ann Duffy. And I think I remember studying the Carol Ann Duffy one for A-level. And it's quite a very sharp, very fiercely feminist take on Eurydice. Um, She's not very impressed that Orpheus has come down to bring her back up to the the world. Um, But yeah, they are both really good. I would recommend those. 
Okay, good. I'll have to check those out and then definitely get them for my daughter. Well, what's the best thing about being a writer? Hmm. There's, there are so many wonderful things about being a writer. I think, I mean, I absolutely love, so before I was a writer, I was a teacher and my whole working day was governed by the bell ringing, you know, every hour um, you move on to the next lesson. And I think what I really love about being a writer is the luxury of time and um, that nobody is ringing a bell and that I can sit down at my laptop and I can work for as long as I want to work and um, nobody's rushing me on. I really enjoy that now as a, as a reaction to all that time that was so regimented. So structured and on someone else's timetable the whole time. Yeah. Well, that's nice. And that obviously being able to set your schedule and decide what you want to do, I guess that would be the other reaction to the regimented time. You know, with the, when you're teaching, you have a set curriculum and things you need to be teaching. And now you can decide what you want to write about and do it. Yeah, there's such a luxury in that. I would certainly think so. Well, are you working on anything at the present that you would like to share with me? Yes. So I am coming... Well, I'm saying coming towards the end, I hope I'm near to the end, of editing my second novel, which again takes women of Greek mythology and puts them to the forefront of their stories. So this one focuses on Clytemnestra, um, her daughter Electra, and also Cassandra, um, the character that I was talking about before, is a really crucial part of this novel as well. So yeah, so I should be finished with that by the end of April, I mean, finished with this round of edits on it. And that will hopefully be out sometime next year. I always think that's so interesting that authors are in the process of promoting the current book that's coming out and dealing with author appearances and living in the world of the book that, you know, you finished and you're holding in your hand, while you're also a lot of the times focused on the next one that's coming and trying to think about editing it and the different things that might need to happen for it. It's probably hard to switch back and forth. It is very confusing, um, definitely. So I'd spent most of most of March kind of immersed in the second book, and then things have started to pick up for Ariadne now as we're getting closer to the publication date. So yeah, I had to really remind myself which book am I talking about? <laughs> definitely. Which Greek myth am I inhabiting right now? Well, what do you like to do when you're not writing or reading? Um, one of my favourite things to do, um, which I'm really excited we're going to be able to do again in the UK soon, hopefully, is go swimming. And I work out a lot of my plot points while I'm in water, I find. Um, so I absolutely can't wait to get back in the pools again. Do you know the author Jill Paul? No, I don't. Because she does the exact same thing. She oh. swims all the time. And so she says she works everything out while she swims. And that's so funny because you're the only two I've ever heard say that. Oh, right. Yeah. Just seems to be where I, where I do my best thinking. That's what she said too. And she swims like when it's even like 40 degrees in the water and stuff. And I'm like, that did not seem like I'd be able to focus on anything, but just the very cold water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's nice to find whatever that place is that helps you kind of clear your mind and have new ideas come up. Yeah. Well, what have you read recently that you really liked? And um, so I have read actually um, a couple of proofs of novels that are coming out later this year um, that have really stood out to me. And um, so one that I would talk about is The Stranding by Kate Sawyer, which is a post-apocalyptic vision of the world. It's a woman who survives the end of the world by hiding in the belly of a whale. 
Um, so it is an absolutely brilliant concept. As soon as I read that, I was I was completely in. I wanted to read that book, and it is absolutely beautiful to read. And the second book, quite different in tone that I've just read. I had to look up the. It's got a different title in the UK. In the UK, it's called Dog Rose Dirt. I think the American title is A Dark and Secret Place, and it's by Jen Williams. And it's a thriller, um, which isn't a genre that I read a lot of. Um, it's, it's about a woman whose mother dies, and then she discovers that her mother has had this correspondence going on with a notorious serial killer. Um, for years and years and she has to investigate what the connection is um, between the two of them and it's all interwoven with these with these dark fairy stories so there's this very eerie quite magical tone to it Um, and I really really enjoyed that as well. Oh that sounds very interesting how creepy is it? It's quite creepy. (laughs) And it is not a book for me that's what I was wondering I was like I can't do super creepy I like hearing about them I just can't read them because then I can't sleep. Yeah, I have a low tolerance for it. So that's why I don't read that many thrillers. And this one, this one was just at sort of my comfort zone where that ends. <laughs> so I wouldn't go creepier than this one, but this one was just right for me. Okay, good. Well, that sounds great. And that's always so interesting to me when the titles vary. The covers I understand a little bit more, but when the titles vary, I think it makes it kind of confusing. Yeah, it it does, definitely. And so it's made me really glad that my novel title is just one word and it's Ariadne's name. So that hasn't changed in any of the countries that we sold it, any of the territories where we sold it so far. Because yeah, I would lose track, I think. I follow an author that I really like her books. And so the same thing was happening to her and the cover and the title, they were so different that I thought she had two different books coming out. And I was like, why does she have one book coming out in the US and one book coming out in the UK? (laughs) And then I realized they were the same book. They had just completely marketed them differently. And so I do think it's a tad bit confusing, but there obviously must be a rationale behind it. Yeah, there must be. I mean, I'm surprised how much the covers can really vary between the US and the UK. You know, they can be so different that it does look like a completely different book. They can be so different. Has that been a fun part for you to see the different covers in different countries? Yes, because they've just all been so beautiful. So, you know, the US and UK ones are really different, but they are both absolutely gorgeous um, and I'm so happy with them. And then I have been able to see the German cover, but that's not out in the public domain yet. Um, and they, again, it's quite different, but really, really dramatic and really striking. So that has been that has been another highlight, actually. I would certainly think so. And really with Greek mythology, you could see where it could go in a million different directions, you know, and other types of stories, thrillers, even if the covers are different. They still sort of have that creepy, thriller-y kind of look. But with Greek mythology, you know, with so many different renderings, so many different stories, I would think you could take that in a lot of different directions. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's such a privilege to have your work interpreted by an artist. You know, I just, I can't get over how, you know, what an honor that feels like. I hadn't even thought about it that way and sort of bringing to life what you've created in your mind and then written on the paper. Yeah, I just um, I'm I'm really amazed by the yeah, the the talent and the skill. And then you, when you think, well, that's an incredible artist. It's uh, Michaela Alkino did the UK one, and um, Joanne O'Neill did the US one, and they're just incredible artists. And the fact that they read my book and then interpreted it so beautifully, I just feel really amazed that that happened. 
Well, and it's great for you that you're pleased with how it looks, because I know every once in a while, an author will get a cover and think this isn't at all what I was envisioning with my story. So it's wonderful that they interpreted it in a way that you like it. Yes, definitely. Well, Jennifer, I really appreciate your time coming on the Thoughts from a Page podcast, and I really enjoyed speaking with you about Ariadne. Oh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it too. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would greatly appreciate it. Jennifer's book can be purchased at the Conversations from a Page bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.